Hey, everybody, we've got a pretty interesting episode for you this week. Back in December, the weekend of the big Hodinkee 10th anniversary celebration, um, senior editor John Buse, who I have here with me today. Hello, everybody. Uh, and I, we got to uh, sit down with Audemars Piguet CEO, Francois-Henri Benamias, uh, and we got to talk about a whole bunch of things. But one of the things we really focused on was the, at the time, unreleased Code 1159 collection. And John, we actually got to see two of the pieces ahead of time, right? Yeah, we, we got to look at one of the chronographs and one of the time-only pieces. Yeah, and it was really interesting at the time to hear Francois kind of walk us through the collection. It was the first time either one of us had seen these watches. We'd heard AP was doing something big, but we didn't really know what it was. And to hear Francois walk us through not kind of having any other perspective or anybody else's opinions was was interesting, especially considering that when they came out a few weeks later at the SIHH, uh, it was quite quite the response, right? Yeah, Francois was super uh, super enthusiastic, I would say, about these watches, and not just the, the cases and the dials uh, that the new collection represented, but also two new movements that he was debuting with Code 1159. So to hear him talk about it was, I think, super interesting. I do too, and, and I think this episode, and the reason we wanted to preface this episode this way, is is that it gives you some insight that I think might have been lost in the kind of fray of, of SIHH. You know, people saw the watches the Saturday night before the show and kind of lost their minds a little bit. Um, and, and granted, there's there's things that I personally really like about them and things about them that I don't like so much. Um, but, you know, it kind of became a little bit of, of an echo chamber of, of negativity. Yeah, I would say so. Echo, echo chamber is definitely the word. There, and I would even say a bit of piling on. Um, yeah. So it's interesting to see what Francois has to say about these watches before there was any reaction, positive or negative. Yeah. And he, I mean, he knew and he talks about it. He knew people were going to have strong reactions. I mean, it's AP. He's been there 25 years and he knows that if you do anything other than the Royal Oak, people are going to have strong opinions. Yeah. I mean, I know when you look and when you come into SIHH and you, and you say that you're releasing a new line of watches that is the most important release for AP since 1972 in the Royal Oak, you're making a statement. For sure. And, you know, to be fair, while the, the reaction was uh, negative on one side, for sure, um, you know, being the most talked about watch release at SIHH is winning no matter how we, no matter how you want to look at it. Yeah. And it wasn't just at the show itself, right? I mean, it was all over social media. You couldn't look anywhere watch related without seeing Code 1159. Oh, for sure. I mean, look at, you know, the comments on our site and others. And if you look at Instagram, you can see that there was kind of a hive mentality developing among people who were following the release. And that's kind of a tragedy because I'm sure among uh, the people reading the articles, there were plenty of people who loved uh, these watches and probably were ready to put down money for them. But I worry that, you know, you see something has become unpopular or not cool in the eyes of some, and maybe you get a little bit gun shy uh, when it comes to making the purchase yourself. Yeah. Well, just so everybody knows, we do talk about more than just Code 1159 with Francois. Uh, we talk about his history at AP, uh, his love of watches, his background in the fashion business, uh, and the fact that at one time he was the largest swatch collector in the world. Fun fact. That's definitely true. <laughs> um, so with that, we'll, uh, we'll get out of the way here and let you enjoy the conversation. I'm your host, Stephen Pulverin, and this is Hodinkee Radio. This week's episode is brought to you by Bohm and Mercier. Stay tuned later in the show for a look at the Clifton Bomatic Cosk, a high-tech chronometer that offers phenomenal value for money. You can also learn more at bohmandmercier.com. All right. Thanks so much for joining us, Francois. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. We have uh, John here as well, our uh, senior editor. Very happy to be here. And uh, Francois, you just got back to New York from Art Basel, right? Yes. I was in Miami for the last five days. And how did that go? Pretty good, actually. Uh, we introduced a, a new artist uh, with a company, Thomas Saraceno. was an incredible mind. I got the chance to visit him in Berlin this summer to try to understand what it's all about. And this is where you see people like me, very grounded, and people like him, very flying. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in a way that teaches us lessons about uh, how to think different and how to be different. How so it have, was a great experience. How long have you guys been working with, uh, with Art Basel? I think we are now fifth year. We started in 2013. Uh, and I think we're going to stay there for quite some time. That's been a good partnership for you guys, I think. Not good, great. It's been great. Okay, yeah, great <laughs> partnership. We are very pleased with the outcome, and uh, we try every year to be better at what we do. Mm -hmm. We know already we, who we're going to work with in 2019, 
it's going to be impressive. Uh, the guy has, again, an unbelievable talent, completely different world. So I always say that when I look at the partnership, that the best is yet to come. And, and what do you think AP gets from being involved with, with Art Basel? You never know completely. It's not a perfect science. If it was, everybody would do it. Everybody would do the exact same thing. It doesn't work this way. It's much more. Every year is a new lesson. Every year we learn from our partnership, from the artists, from the talent, and it, it brings us back to what the brand is all about. Never standing still. Always look at tomorrow, what could be improved, foster talents, and uh, see what the world has to offer. Well, spe speaking of looking to tomorrow, we're recording this in December uh, on the eve of, of H10, right after Art Basel. Um, but we actually showed up this morning to a surprise, which isn't going to be out there till SIHH, which if you're hearing this, it's after SIHH. Um, and if you don't, you will be dead by then. Right. If so, uh, <laughs> please come try to find John and me. We're somewhere. Um, prob probably in a dungeon in uh, the Valley de Joux. But Now uh, you're talking. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, we showed up this morning, and there are two brand new watches sitting on a tray in front of us. Can you tell us about these watches? What we're what we're looking at here? So I'm going to start by saying two words. It's at last. That was a song from uh, Ella James, but it's also it's finally. It's uh, it's something we've been working on for many years now. It's a complete new line. It's a new chapter in the history, hopefully in the history book of Audemars Piguet. We're going to launch that on the 12th of January, so the day before the SIHH, worldwide. We'll have some teasing parts before, obviously. Uh, the name of the watch is Code 1159, Code 1159 by Audemars Piguet. And uh, there are many, many things, but let's, let's put it this way. Audemars Piguet has lived many more years without the right oak than with. And we work on that collection, not being pushed by the clients because nobody has been asking us to create something different. Movement-wise, yes. People were asking for the new integrated chronograph that we should have done and made for many, many years. <laughs> it's, it's, it's here, by the way. It's finally there. Perfect. Okay, but it was much more about creating a collection that would give the credit to Brennac Audemars Piguet that has been always looking at designs and where to look at watches in slightly different way compared to the others. And here we are, brand new collection, nothing to compare with, no inspiration from anybody else our own designers, our own team. So it's a new case, new movements, new everything, and bearing the name Code 1159, but I will not tell you why today. They would have to find out. I won't share with you even <laughs> though it's in January. Okay. <clears throat> the casework, just looking at these watches from, from a few feet away, is really stunning. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on with the cases? So pretty much we, we went to our own people and say, Keep what you have in mind and what you've been working with for the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years and push everything as fast as, as far as possible. So we want, the first brief on the watch was, it has to be almost impossible to copy. That was the first thing. And the second thing was, every detail, every craft, every skill from our case manufacturers has to be pushed to the extreme. So the case is actually uh, three parts. The lugs are attached in a different way. And the brief came also from all the tools we use today. A phone, a computer, a TV, where there is no frame. Almost no frame. So no frame on a watch means no bezel. Mm -hmm. Now, if you don't put a bezel on a watch, you have difficulties to put the glass or to attach the lugs, potentially. So it's complicated. So we reduce the bezel to the thinnest possible uh, diameter, if you want. And that gives a biggest opening on the watch. So even though the watch is 41 millimeter, it gives the feel that it's slightly bigger. The second part was the glass itself. The glass is double curved. So when I said double curved, you say, what do you mean? I got difficulties to understand myself when it came to me. I say, what do you mean double curved? So it's curved vertically from 6 to 12, and then spherically under or around the watch. But it's one piece of glass. So when we went to see our manufacturer and our dial supply, the, the glass uh, manufacturer, he looked at us and said that we were pretty much crazy. But he said, but that's what we want. So by having the glass the way it is, it gives the best legibility possible. It's not a loop at all, but it's like having and looking at the dial in 4 or 8K, if it was a TV thing. 
And on the dial, we all again, again push the details very far. Typical example. First of all, it's lacquered on the basic collection, which means the automatic and the chronograph. The dials are lacquered. When you lacquer a dial, nothing new, many brands have done it, you've got between eight to 12 layers of lacquer. Now just watching, looking at it, you scratch it. So you got a lot of times where you have to throw them away because you barely looked at it. Then you have to apply the numbers, the indexes and the Arabic numbers. Okay, people have done it, nothing new. The tricky part was the logo. If you both look at your watches, the logos on watches are always printed. Okay, because that's the way to do it. And we decided that we wanted the logo to be treated like the numbers or the indexes, meaning being applied. Now think about Audemars Piguet, the length of the logo and the side of the letters in gold that you have to apply by hand. If you use a normal size, it will actually bend every time you do it. If it bends, you throw the, the dial and the logo to the garbage. You start all over again. It took us two years, no jokes, two years to find the right size and thickness to be able to have an applied gold logo by a human hand. And through the course of the access to feasibility from now, two dials manufacturer, one gave up six months ago. So we got a call in the morning and the guy say, I'm out. He was throwing eight to nine dials for every 10 dials made. He says, I'm out. We got very scared because when you have only one supplier, if anything goes wrong, you don't have the watches. Good news, he succeeded. The watches are actually made as we speak. And we launched at the SHH and we'll deliver the entire collection by the first week of February. Wow, so that's that's quick quick rollout. Yeah, and we're talking about 13 references, six calibers, out of which three are completely new. Wow. Which three calibers are those? So the automatic is a brand new one. Chronograph, integrated mechanism. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, okay, it's there. And a self-winding tourbillon. Okay. And can you tell us the story of this chronograph movement? Because like, as you've alluded to, this is something enthusiasts have been asking for for, for years. This is, this is big news. No, no, it is big news. At the same time, it's not the first time that AP makes an integrated chronograph mechanism. But to be able to reach the quantities we're going to use with this new caliber, it's a, it was a challenge. Uh, actually, there is a story behind that. I became the CEO in May 2012. In October 2012, I put 40 people from the headquarters in a hotel room at the Hotel des Horlogers in Novasu. Closed the door, I was with them, and I said, now, we are not going to leave the room for bathroom, for eating, for anything, until you guys give me an automatic and a chronograph mechanism. We entered the room at 5 p.m., and I was scared that it would actually stay the night or two days, but I gave my word that we, nobody would leave the room. So imagine what could have happened. <laughs> but we left the room at 9.15 p.m. that night. So in four hours and 15 minutes, 40 of our top guys, top, top brains, put together an automatic mechanism and a chronograph mechanism. True story, no lies. And it took us roughly five years to develop. So it was ready already two years ago but because we wanted to launch these new mechanisms in a new case, the whole thing was slightly delayed, okay. which is why we're launching now in 2019. Now, I, I totally understand the desire to do the chronograph, but you guys already had a very serviceable automatic movement. Can you tell me a little bit about why you wanted to make a new automatic? Because that automatic mechanism, it's not an automatic mechanism. Mm -hmm. We are buying these from another watch company, and it's a good mechanism. We work with it for many, many years. But at one point, when you are a true watchmaker mm -hmm. and you have to be able to come up with your own mechanisms. And in the future, Audemars Piguet wants to be able to pretty much manufacture all our mechanisms. Mm -hmm. I've seen already the development of what's going to come for the next four or five years. We will be pleased about the outcome, I think. <laughs> Very nice. So, so do you have plans then to take these movements and make these two sort of foundational movements for the brand at large going forward? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Actually, on the automatic, in 19, the movement will already be in other watches. Okay. 
And the chronograph will have to wait a little while. Yeah, because it's 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 tougher when you when you launch new mechanisms. There is a it, you cannot go from zero to ten thousand in two seconds, mm -hmm. so you have to grow and great grow the quantities very delicately because if there is one single issue that comes, hopefully there won't be. Right now, people don't know, but I'm touching wood. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's uh, it, it's it's complicated. So we have to we have to do it. You start maybe on your one with a thousand. Then you go on your two with three thousand, your three, five, six thousand, and eventually ten thousand. But you don't go from zero to ten thousand in two seconds. I mean, in in the history of the watch industry, you know, if we look over the last you know hundred years, let's say, there were many years where really high end watchmakers weren't developing their own mechanisms. There were there were movements that were used kind of across the industry, whether these were Lemania movements or, or other things, used in very high end watches. But over the last 15, 20 years, we've seen a huge push for manufacturers to become integrated and to be developing their own calibers. How do you think that's changed the dynamics of the industry overall? First of all, in the history of Audemars Piguet, we've made many, many, many times movements for many other watch companies. Sure. And some of the best out there. And you sometimes you see those watches showing up at auction, and we've seen Audemars Piguet in a different branded case. Um, and still today, we develop mechanism for the other watch companies. But what, is, what has changed is the fact that brands were scared of the supply. And at one point, we could actually have issues of not getting anything anymore from the major suppliers in the industry. So it was a twofold thing. One, the risk of supply. And the second thing is, to get the complete legitimacy to, to be able to show the world that if we are truly master watchmakers, that should be a non-issue. But what it created is many, many issues with the hundreds of suppliers in Switzerland, because when you've got a wheel, which is designed by Audemars Piguet, or a wheel designed by another watch company, it's not the same. And for that wheel manufacturer somewhere in the, in the Jura mountains or anywhere in the country, it's complicated. And it did affect somehow also the supplier's business because if you start to put something at work with a mechanism and the business slows down, which we've seen over the last seven years, then it's like a, a car crash, you know, when the first one, then you've got a complete, uh, uh, how do you call it, carambolage? Uh, it's a pi car oh, pile up. Pile up, yeah. yes. And that did affect many, many small suppliers in Switzerland that could have actually gone bankrupt. So that's what it created as well. And today, the top brands, we are getting closer to our suppliers, supporting them to make sure that tomorrow, one year, five years, 10 years, they will still be able to do their job. Yeah, I, I think this, this kind of hints at something else, which is somebody asked me recently if I thought that watches followed the same trends as fashion, if they, they kind of worked alongside. And I was trying to explain to them that the development times for a watch are just so much longer that, you know, if, if a fashion house shows a particular trend in spring, everyone else can kind of jump on board by next fall. It doesn't quite work that way for the, the watch industry. And how do you think that these long lead and development times and having to work with suppliers and really build these things over three, four, five, ten years changes how you have to think about the, the creative process? So first of all, you cannot compare the high-end watchmaking with the fashion world. And exactly for what you said, mm -hmm. fashion goes now. When I start, I work in the fashion business. When I was in the fashion business, we had two collections: spring, summer, fall, winter. Mm -hmm. Now some brands have got six collections through the year. So it's it's the speed is impossible to we we can't we can't do that in the watch world. Watches should be compared to cars. When you have a new engine for a car, and on the high end world, it's five to seven years of, of development and billions of money invested before I, the car is actually made. So this is much more our world. That said, the time to develop has to shrink. And because of the evolution of, of the technology and, and the machines also we use and the brains of our mm -hmm. watchmakers or engineers, we know today that when five, seven years ago, it would take five, seven, 10 years, the new benchmark would be much more three to four. That would be the right time that we have to look to develop a mechanism from A to Z. Actually, I saw something last week, which I won't talk to you about, except I will just let you know that <laughs> this is a major 
caliber for the Marpiguet. And I've seen his newest version. So that caliber 4.0, not even 2.0, but 4.0, developed in 18 months. And I saw the first working one in less than 18 months. So it's going to go faster, but never as fast as the fashion world. Have, have you ever had the issue where you start working on a project, and by the time it gets to the point where it's ready to launch, you have to majorly change it because it doesn't feel relevant or exciting or something anymore, where the, the development time actually forces you to change along the way to kind of like re-tack as you go? I would say yes for designs and, and the outside of the watch, not for the inside. No, never. And I hope it, won't, it will not happen. But for the outside, sure. The watch I'm wearing today on my wrist, I killed it the day before the SIHH, 2018, because I didn't seen it in real. I saw drawing, 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 drawings, and at one point, the watch came. And I look at the dial, it was a disaster. And it was supposed to be a big, big news for the SIHH. Mm -hmm. I killed it the day before. And can you tell us about this watch real quick, since so our, our listeners can't see it? Concept Chrono Tourbillon Automatic Skeleton. So we made three series of 25 watches, 25 in sky blue, 25 in white, and 25 in red. And I really killed the, that collection right before this SIHH. I said, we're not showing this. This is ugly. So you see, <laughs> things happen sometimes. Yeah. And the reaction at the headquarters was bad because everything was ready. The videos for the promotion or the campaign, everything. Say, no, we're not launching. Not good enough. Mm -hmm. And when we finally got the corrected version, which is the one I'm wearing now, and we launched in July, so six months later, now it's, I think, as close as possible to perfection. It's really good, and now the watch is great, and it sells well, and, it's, and it's, people look at it and say, I want one, which was the goal. Yeah. <laughs> so something, some, sometimes it happened that it doesn't reach the, 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 the requirement, the level that we want when we see the product finished. There's, there's one watch that you had last year, which I think at SIHH, which I think was probably the coolest watch of the whole show. And I'm speaking, of course, about the RD2. Where is, where is that along the way right now? And is that something that someone will be able to purchase and wear eventually? It's coming. <laughs> it's coming. You know, it's, it's, there is a movie, A Field of Dreams, with Kevin Costner. Yeah. Build it and they will come. Okay, so we built it and it's coming. 2019. <laughs> oh, very nice. Perfect. Okay. I think people are going to be excited about that. Yes. Uh, get ready because it's going to be only 100 watches. Oh, okay. Wow. For 19. In platinum? <laughs> uh, titanium and platinum. Nice. Okay. Uh, this, is, this is something interesting, I think, at large, which is, you know, the, the Royal Oak is iconic, and I hate, I hate that word, and it's way overused, but I think with the Royal Oak, it is genuinely iconic. Um, how do you keep that collection feeling relevant and doing new things like ceramic QP, doing things like the um, uh, two-tone all-white metals. Like you're really breathing genuinely new life into this collection while still kind of respecting the things that make it unique. How do you strike that balance and try to keep it kind of both fresh and classic at the same time? Because we want always to look at the Red Oak as being 45 years young and not 45 years old. In 2022, we'll have the 50th anniversary of the Royal Oak. So we know obviously already what, what, what's going to happen by then. And it's going to be a, a fireworks of uh, innovation in design and in movements. You'll see. You guys should see the smile on uh, Francois' uh, face yeah. right now. <laughs> but it's, it's much more that... I always say that if Jules Demar and Edouard Piguet were alive today and being 25 years old, First of all, they wouldn't live only in Switzerland. They would travel the world. And as good as they would be with one watch, the following day they would already be on the next one. That's the notion of never standing still. That's a, that's a notion of always thinking tomorrow and say, what could we do better? Now, we made mistakes in the past, sometimes changing too fast or making the change too gimmicky, just a, a little color change and that was a new watch. Today, we, are, we really stop this. We go much more about in depth about the quality and we don't launch just to have the fun of launching something new. If it doesn't make sense, we don't do it. Since we are making only 40,000 watches, by the way, 2019 will be the last year at 40,000, then we'll start to increase a little bit more. But it's all about the quality. 
and it has to be genuinely good and better. If not, we don't do this anymore. And so you said that there were years where you felt like maybe things were a little gimmicky. That's changed. I mean, I, I remember the days when there was a new offshore limited edition every week, you know, and, and the product portfolio got... Every day, every day. It was every day. Every day? Every, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and the portfolio just got huge. It was a new something, different mm -hmm. colors, different straps, whatever. And now you've really, as CEO, really contracted the product portfolio. That must have been in some ways a, a controversial thing to do because it was, it was working. These watches were selling, right? Yes, but we are losing the respect of the, the, the true watch collectors. They were actually blaming us on a regular basis. They were saying, you are doing too many of those, too many of these. It's, we don't know exactly what's happening. And it's not right for the brand. So they were somehow telling us to protect the integrity of the company and the brand. And when I took over, and don't forget, I was one of the ones behind all these editions as well. Right. So right. yeah, yeah no, no, I, I made my mistakes. It's okay. But it was much more done at that time in an opportunistic way. And when I came on board and I said, we have to build the collection for years now. We cannot look at just launching a watch. It works one year and then it goes and we launch something else. First of all, it creates tremendous headaches in terms of production for after sales service. Mm -hmm. So we decided to say, no, we got to put it in a completely different level. And that's what I say, building everything on quality. Quality, by definition, lasts. Okay, so when you look at a right oak and a design, if we launch something new, it's not for one year. That doesn't make any sense. So I look at examples from other industries, and we decided to go from over 500 references to roughly 150. Oh, wow. And uh, that happened almost overnight. So it was a shock in Switzerland, because we were used to do so many different iterations. And, but it has proven to be right because I think that over the last six years, the perceived value of the company has increased drastically. There is a lot more respect <coughs> from the collectors and the people who don't know much about AP. We've got also a lot of younger clientele coming to the brand. So again, knock on wood, I hope that we're going to keep working this way. I'm, I'm interested to know how the reduction in number of total SKUs has affected total production, if at all in terms of the number of units? It does change everything because first of all, by reducing the number of references, you get access to these references a lot more by definition. If you do 500 references and you make 40,000 watches, you've got 80 watches on average per, per reference. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have only 150, that's changed the number, which means that when you launch a watch, it's actually seen in at least 150 points of sales in the world. When before, we launch a watch and nobody would actually see it, or it would be lost in the collection. And then for production, after sales service, and all these kind of things, it's, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. Because don't forget, we guarantee that we're going to service your watches for a minimum of 25 years. So every time you change something on the watch, as, as small as an index or something, we have to control the orders for this specific index for a minimum of 25 years. Imagine that, time the number of references, time the number of years, and for decades and decades. Yeah, it becomes unmanageable at a certain point. Completely. And you lose the integrity of the brand. And now a look at this week's sponsor. Last week, we introduced you to the Clifton Bomatic Cosk from Bowman Mercier. This simple time and date watch packs a lot of technology into an understated package. The watch's 40mm stainless steel case is extremely comfortable on the wrist, and its vintage-inspired dial is elegant without being too dressed up. The bright white color and the sharp, elongated hour markers and hands make the watch very legible, while the crosshair detailing gives it a little bit of a vintage feel. The date window at 3 o'clock is subtle, and I think even the naysayers will find it tough to argue with. Ultimately, the Clifton Bomatic Cosk is a thoroughly modern watch with classic mid-century styling that makes it a perfect option for daily wear. To learn more about this watch and the entire Bomatic collection, visit bowmanmercier.com. All right, let's get back to the show. One of the other things you've, you've been, I would say, a little bit out, outspoken about is retail strategy and kind of pivoting the brand's retail strategy more to single brand owned 
Audemars Piguet boutiques as opposed to multi-brand retailers. Can you talk about that strategy and kind of how you, you came to that idea? I, my true definition of luxury is exclusivity. Luxury, that word has been used so many times by so many companies. You could buy your luxury coffee today, which doesn't make much sense, but luxury is exclusivity. The thing is, when you buy a song on iTunes today, for people who are still buying music, or, or actually you pay music on Spotify, whatever, but okay, it's 99 cents or 125. iTunes and Apple, by the way, knows who you are. They've got your name, they've got your address, they've got your credit card information, and, be, and with artificial intelligence, they pretty much know who you are, how much you could make a year, because with a lot of tools today, they could see where you live, and they've got to see if it's an apartment, if it's a house, so how much you pay in rent, how much you own it for. There are so many things that would help you to get your clients a lot better. With the watch industry, we could sell items in the 10, 20, 30, 40,000 dollar range and not know at all who the clients were, which is crazy when you think about it. We are today the last industry that does that. Talk about fashion, haute couture, everybody knows the end clients. In the car industry, the brands know who you are, even though you've got retailers in between. So the watch industry were the sort of last category that was not addressing this correctly. We have to know who the clients are. We have to know when we make mistakes. We have to know if they're happy or not happy about the brand and what we, how we deal with them. And the only way to do it is to go directly with them. Now, going directly with them doesn't mean that we cut the retailers because today people think that I'm closing everybody on the planet. We are shrinking our distribution network, yes, but we are partnering with the best retailers on the planet to actually open boutique together. So it's, it's, I want this to be very clear. It's not about the end of the retailer, but it's less and less and less, yes, to give the best possible customer experience. And what role do you think online plays in all of this? So first of all, we already sell online, except that my definition of online is on the phone. <laughs> yeah, take our store in New York, in New York, Roughly 50% of the sales are done online, meaning on the phone. People don't go to the store. They call. Do you have this, this or that? Yes. Send me your instruction. I'll wire the money. Send me the watch. That's online. So I look at online being a new tool, not the end of the game where everybody would actually be sold online. But there are many places on the planet where we cannot reach actually everybody. And I understand why somebody who knows exactly what he wants would actually love to be able to say, I want that specific watch, let me order it and ship me the watch and go, I'm going to be happy. Now, obviously, we want to create an interaction with the people and online is a good tool for that as well because it could start with a, I go online because I'm another Marpigay aficionado so I want to find something and then the brand's going to be hopefully in touch with me. Mm -hmm. So it's a new tool, but not the end of the game and not only what we want to do, obviously. And, you know, you, you talk about knowing your clients, what kind of additional value do you think you can bring to them by knowing them better? Avoiding all the mistakes we make on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> so the stakes aren't high at all? Uh, no. <laughs> no, but think about it for a second. When we look at launching a new watch, and let's say it's an expensive one. So expensive meaning between 150 to 300,000, for example. We're going to use the basic numbers. How many are we making? Oh, we're going to make 25. No, okay, so no, we feel that there is much more potential. So we go straight to 50. These are round numbers. If we pass 50, okay, 100. What does that mean? Nothing. What is the real true potential of a specific watch for a specific time? We don't know that yet. And actually, by getting to know our clients better, we could figure out exactly what would be the right number of watches to be made to keep the exclusivity and the integrity without affecting the fact that a lot, not a lot, but many people would want to get access to it. So we're going to learn a lot more to adjust actually volumes. We're going to know much more to adjust. Sometimes we think, we think, because that's the way it is for any kind of companies, that if we give a five years warranty, it's good. And actually our five years warranty is a two plus three. To get a three additional years, you need to re register online. If you don't do it, you don't get them. 
But let's put it this way. If I'm the client, I say, so I buy another Marpiguet watch. I don't want to register, but I know that my friend who registers is getting five years. Why should I get the five years anyway? All those type of questions would be actually fair. And there would be answers. But when you start to enter, interact with your clients, you're going to get a lot more solutions to your issues than if you don't. And, and you think this data will be helpful in terms of actually affecting then it, it will feed back and affect what product you're producing? Absolutely. People want those, those interactions. We see this. Now, there's a big difference being stalkers with our clients or butlers. And I love the fact that we need to manage them in a way that it's never too intrusive because how many, um, how many more emails you want to get every day? How many phone calls? How many? So what do you think about your food today? Was it? No. No, <laughs> no, no, but it's enough. There is a point where it's enough. But when they want, you have to respond immediately. You have to be available. And we are, we are far from being done yet in terms of what we could do and how we could improve the customer experience. It's, it's, we're still all, everybody's learning. And every day, and I'm a consumer of luxury, not only in the watch world, but in, in many, many fields. Every day, most of the experiences done in stores or online are not at the level of what the brand should actually, what the, what the brand should stand for. So the good news is we can always do better. And the one that will do it better quicker will be the one winning. So what, what are some of those things that you think luxury brands in, in general, watches, fashion, auto, anything, what are some of the things you think they do on a daily basis that they should fix? What are, what are the big mistakes? Adapt, meaning get to understand what you're dealing with. I always say, if John comes to our store and he comes on a Tuesday morning and that morning he dropped his kids to school and he's in a hurry, he's, we got, he's got to come to the store in a mood A, we got to call that mood A, and I need to sense what's happening that day. I cannot bore him to death with a zillion things. It might be just passing by. It doesn't have two hours and I have to adjust my setting speech okay, to him because I know that's what he needs right now at the right second. Now imagine that same John, okay, now it's 10 p.m. It's another Marpilla dinner. Now it's cool. There is no time. The kids are in bed anyway with a babysitter. You're with your wife, you are attending this dinner, and now I can adjust the speech to a completely different vibe. That's what it's all about. Too many times, salespeople are formatted and to respect certain, so you're always gonna get, uh, yes, you want a cup of coffee, you want a water, can I, what can I do for you? All these sentences, which I, I understand. I don't like them as much. I always want to understand what's behind. And maybe if I'm going to see John, which I'm looking at right now for the auditors, by the way, I'm looking at him. He's actually wearing a white shirt with a sort of beige jacket, which is quite elegant. Brown shoes, pair of jeans. So he's casual, elegant. Uh, looking at him, I could, I could make a comment on the jacket and say, the strap he chose for his watch is perfect. Thank because, you. Because, no, no, it's, it's, it's elegant. <laughs> and it's, no, I have to say, it's, it's nice. I wouldn't date you yet, but it's, no, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> But it's kind of cool. And just that comment could actually break the ice and say, okay, it's not only about selling, it's about just adjusting to each client. And human beings are all different, so we have to be careful. Yeah. I think, you know, let's, I want to step out of kind of the day-to-day the -day and go back to kind of the beginning of, of your entry into the watch world. So you've been with Audemars Piguet since 1994, correct? Yes, 1994. I'm getting so old. <laughs> That's not why I did it. Sorry. Um, Actually, you did, but yeah. you're going to be punished for that. That's okay. Again, please, I'll, I'll be in Libreso. Please come find me. Yeah. Um, you came from the fashion world, right? Mm -hmm. And the watch world was a very different place in 1994. What back then drew you to coming to the watch industry? Uh, actually, nothing. <laughs> I got the job by luck. I was uh, in Saint Bart on vacation, and I met. Uh, a friend, um, I met someone, sorry, I met someone on the beach in St. Bart's that was actually in the watch world in Paris. And we became friends. We saw each other in Paris for six months without ever talking about watches because I wasn't in the watch world, I was in the fashion business. And six months later, 
he took Audemars Piguet for the French market as a distributor. And one dinner, he said, Francois, do you still like to work in the fashion world? I said, yeah, but I think that the distributors actually will actually fall apart because the brands will take over. You see, that was already 1993. And um, he said, okay, so why don't you come to Basel? Because at the time we were in Basel, not in Geneva. And he said, meet the people from Audemars Piguet and if you like what you see, I'm giving you a job. And I told him, but I don't, I don't know anything about watches, which was partly true because I knew about Swatch. I was one of the biggest Swatch collectors on the planet at That's that right. time. That's yeah. right, yeah. Yes, but that was it. And actually, I'd never heard the name Audemars Piguet before, just to be clear. But when he offered me the job, so I went to Basel, met the people, and said, you know what? Yeah, I like that. I'm going to start. The funny thing is, so my first day at work, September 1st, 1994, they wanted to put a rhyl oak on me. I didn't like the watch at all. <laughs> I said, Woo. no, I was much more vintage look. Uh, I had an old Paul Newman. So it was very much vintage. I didn't want to have the modern things uh, at all. And he said, no, but this is the watch. No, this is what you have to wear. I said, I don't like it. So I started to wear a very old square perpetual calendar, which gave me that vintage look, which I loved. And I wore it for six months. And slowly but surely, obviously, I, I started to fall in love with the right oak and, and wore one, but not on my very first six months. So that was the beginning. And what was different then, we are selling the watches by hand. My job as a salesperson for Audemars Piguet in 1994 was going physically to a store with watches in a suitcase, show a collection, and hopefully sell one or two watches. And if we are selling one or two watches to a retailer, it would be hallelujah. It was champagne. We got to celebrate. That's how we started then. It was pretty much unknown in France. It was extremely expensive for the French public. And we are selling really one watch at a time. So when we look at today, the new generation that comes to work for the Marpiguet and they act like the, we won a 10 World Cups in a row, <laughs> we have to remind them that it was not always done this way. And old people like me <laughs> suffered actually quite a lot to start to develop and promote the brand. So obviously you are the CEO now, <clears throat> but between your time in France and being CEO in Switzerland, you actually ran the brand here in New York. You ran uh, North America. Sure. Uh, I arrived here in 1999 with my same very Brooklyn, broken accent, broken Brooklyn accent, <laughs> which I still have today. I apologize for that. Um, and the brand was actually dead dead. I didn't start from scratch in the US. I started from minus three. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 don't, don't, don't laugh. Some retailers threw me out of their store, of their stores when I got to meet them. So I was in, and this was, this was less than 20 years ago. Yeah. 1999. So I did a tour of the US at that time. We had 95 points of sales. We are selling watches for roughly 6 million of revenue a year, which means nothing. The age of the inventory was extremely old. We had uh, many, many uh, quality issues. So when I showed up in stores, I said, oh, by the way, my name is Francois Benamias, and the CEO for the Marpillier said, the retailer was saying, oh, the Marpillier, get out. So they're throwing me out of their stores. They didn't even want to talk to me. Okay, that's how bad we were and the brand was. But when I was leaving the store, I say, one day, one day, <laughs> because I'm a very competitive person, I say, you got to beg to get this, this, this watch in your store. You got to come back and say, I want AP. It's going to take me two, three, four, five, six, I don't care. But I couldn't stand the fact that without knowing me, people were saying, out. We don't even want you in our world. So it took us 10 years to build a different brand, which it is today. And uh, I'm pretty pleased with that the US market is still the number one market in the world for the brand, which is good because for many other watch companies, you hear always, East, <laughs> mm -hmm. but no, no, it's still the US and I'm always very pleased to come back here to see what we've achieved. We've now a huge team, obviously. We started with eight people in 1999. Now we've got 84 people in the company. And since we are actually integrating a lot of new retail operations as well, it's, it's, it's a completely different uh, brand now. Do you remember a particular moment in the you know early 2000s when maybe you, you had that moment where you said, okay, it's, it's, it's turning around. Like this is, this is the pivot point. 
Uh, the first one was the end of 2000, 2000 when we had the um, auction, the unranked 25th anniversary celebration at Christie's, where we auctioned off 35 watches worn by celebrities. We had Arnold Schwarzenegger and Mohammed Ali, both in the room with Billy Crystal, Sharon Stone, a lot of major names. And it was at the end of 2000, 2000 yes. And that was the very first time I say, mm, there is something. The following, the following days, we got over 100 TV channels that reported and spoke about the success of this charity auction. We raised over 1.5 million that night, which was huge for a charity auction for a brand that was not that much known. And uh, that was, I think, the beginning of the success of the brand here in the U.S. Um, were there any, um, you know, were there any lessons that you took from your your time building the brand up here in the states to what it is now that you that you've taken with you uh, to Switzerland and uh, are in implementing on a larger scale now? Yeah, uh, to be a better boss. No, no, I'm not joking. Now I've been raised under a very Latin education. And when you are in France or in Italy or in Spain, when you're a kid and you, uh, the, the rates, the, the grades were from zero to 20. So 20 over, you see the best. I wasn't getting a lot of those. I was getting a lot of four, five, six, eights. And, but the thing is, if you'd get a four out of a 20 and the following week you would get an eight, you would still be a triple dope. Okay, so the, the, the teacher would say, you're bad, you're nothing, you're worth zero, you will never succeed. And that does affect the brain of a, of a child. When I moved here, so it was never good enough for anybody around me. Okay, so I was always complaining about the fact that it could be done better because I've been, I was raised that way. And what I've learned culturally here is when you go from a four on 20 to eight, it's already better. And just the fact that you could tell kids or then later on your employees that they are doing better is a complete change of vibe. And I became a much better boss after the US than I was when I arrived here. That country taught me that lesson. And this is the biggest thing I took back with me in Switzerland. And I still use a lot of analogies of what I've learned here through my kids, through education and relationships that I'm using actually a lot there now. Should be proud of that, actually, guys. This is an important moment. Uh, I should see tears on your on your eyes, but it's... We're, we're both crying. Okay. Yeah, we are. <laughs> Do you, what what are, I guess, your your big goals going forward for Autumn Piguet? What what if we talk to you on? Hopefully, the show's still around. Um, what if we if we talk to you in five years, ten years? What what do you hope you'll be able to tell us? That we are becoming more and more the brand of reference. That. Uh, People will look at Audemars Piguet as the brand that will always be there in a sense that if nobody was watch buying watches anymore and if there was only one brand that they would actually go after, it would be Audemars Piguet. That would be the goal. That this, you built it in decades. That's not happening in years, obviously. But this is my, my dream because I want to be able to say that even though in five years, I think you will be around because you, you, you're young and cute. So you're going to stay in that show for much more time. You can come back on the show anytime yeah. you want. But I'm getting old, so at one point I will stop. But hopefully if I stop and 10 years later, I'm invited to an Audemars Piguet event somewhere, and I will look at it and say, okay, the whole thing is still even better than I thought, and that will be the, the reward. And, and how do you go about, you know, you, you talk about things that endure, things that last. How do you go about as, as the CEO of a company, building a company, that when you do eventually decide to, to step aside, can continue to live and grow and kind of move in the direction you pushed it when, when you're not there? I always go back to, to what, what any company is, is all about. It's people. You could be as good as you want on the technology. You could be as good as you want on, on this, on this uh, 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 techniques or, 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 you be, or you increase volumes or you would do anything but people. People are, are always key. And whether you're eight, 50, 2000, the culture of a company, that's what's going to make it last. And you cannot change all the time. It's impossible. Because when you think about it, in 2000, there were 200 employees at Audemars Piguet worldwide. We are now 1,600. And 
that's the most difficult thing to work on every day, making sure that every single person at Odema Piguet, in any country where we are, understand why we are doing what we do, how we have to do it, and what are we doing actually at the end. And it's not, if I had to summarize that very quickly, it's not about just setting watches. Because setting watches, I could do this all day long and I could sell anything that way. It's building a brand that will last forever. And this is an everyday work. It applies to any kind of companies, any kind of business, businesses. It always goes back to people. How you're gonna manage, care about them and making sure they belong and they're not just <clears throat> passing through their career and their time and say, it's, it does, they don't care, it could be any other companies, it's really the same thing. You mentioned building a multi-generational um, brand that will be around, that will last uh, you know, for years and years to come. Um, and that makes me just think about you know, the family. AP is one of the very few remaining uh, brands out there that is uh, owned by the family, that, the, the founding family. Um, I think we are the last one, by the way. You are the last one, in yeah. fact, you're right. Um, you know, how, 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 do, how do you work with the family and, and what role do they play in kind of, in kind of you know, taking that through uh, from generation to generation? First of all, the, when we sat down together with the board, when they gave me the position of CEO, I said, so what do you want from me? It was never about increasing revenue. It was never about increasing profitability. It was about lasting. It was about saying, okay, this is where we are. We've been in business since 1875. Build the brand in a way that will still be here in 100 years from now. So it was not about numbers. And the way to do it was, again, we go back to people. After that, they gave me a pretty much freedom, a good freedom to, to do what I, what I think was right. It doesn't mean that we always agree. We have our fights, and sometimes we have to fight pretty hard because I, if I... If I strong belief on something, I'm going to fight as much as I can to get it done. At the same time, what I give to them as a credit is that brand never got close to not be there anymore, to bankruptcy. So as much as sometimes I would want to go faster, they want me sometimes to go slower. It's because, and I, and I give them a credit, say, you've been in business since 1875. So somehow, if the brand is what it is today, is a lot of things we are done right. So this is where we have to balance the, the being a little bit uh, bullish or, or bearish, okay? And that's the way it has been working for the last six years. Jasmine Odomar told me three years ago, because I, w I was asking her, so Jasmine, what do you want? Tell me what do you want? She said in a very English, subtle way of saying things, she said, I don't think we have the place we deserve. And I told her, don't say more. I know what I have to do now. Okay, it's clear. I, I don't need to hear more. And that was her way of telling me what I should do for the 14 years. And that's what we've been working on since. So we're getting close to having to wrap up. But before we do that, uh, you alluded to it earlier. And I, it's something I came in today wanting to talk about. Uh, but that's your Swatch collection. Can you tell us how you got interested in Swatch and kind of how, how you became one of the preeminent Swatch collectors in the world? So in 1989, you were not even born. Barely, barely born. Barely born. Barely born. Okay. How old were you in 1989? I was just born in 1989. You see? Yeah. You see, I know everything here. <laughs> um, there was a craziness about the scuba and the chronos at Swatch. But it was crazy. Everybody wanted these watches. He started in Italy, really strong. At that time, I was working in the fashion world. And the Italians were driving me insane. Every time they would come to France to say, find me that scuba, find me that chrono, find me that scuba, find me that chrono, I say, come on. And I said to actually fall in love with the whole thing. You have to understand, Swatch was created in 1982. So in 1989, I was already seven years behind. And I've got a collector's mind. So when I put myself into something, I want everything and the day, the day before. And I started to see how could I get the entire, how could I get access to the entire collection? But in a Swatch, you have to get the watches new because if they are worn, they could really be damaged and destroyed. Right. And it took me three good years to find all the collections since 1982. 
So I found watches from actually 1983 because they launched in 1982, but the first watches came in 1983. And they were very simple, reddish, uh, khaki, uh, brown, and not very nice. But to find those new in 1989 was a big achievement. I do, I think at one point I knew all the references, all the single references by heart because I was, there was no internet then. We're not going computers. So was everything on the phone. I was talking to the world, I'm serious, the world to get access to the watches everywhere to see where do you find this? Is this still in the box? And when I met Mr. Hayek on a TV show, on a TV set actually in France, he saw the collection because, and he didn't know that I would be actually invited as well. And he saw watches that were not supposed to be actually in the collection because in certain auction or certain places, you would get watches which were prototypes mm -hmm. that were never supposed to be sold. I had some of those as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it was funny. And you look at the collection say, where do you get this one? And where do you get that one? Say, uh, you know, it's <laughs> you gotta do what you gotta do. <laughs> so it, it, it was a fun time. And then they bought actually my collection. Oh, uh, okay. Yes, in 1996. And the sad, the funny, sad thing is I sold them my collection in 1996 and their own collection got robbed the following day. Oh, which okay. means that I could have sold the collection for so much more. <laughs> <laughs> but they still have the collection, I know. Uh, and actually, I made a deal when I sold my collection. There was one, one particular set that I didn't want to get rid of. It was the, the watches made for the Olympic Games in Atlanta in 1996. Yeah. And at that time, they were giving the athletes the gold version for the gold medal, the yeah. silver and the bronze. And the, this weather went missing, obviously, because I was not at the Olympic Games. So when I saw the collection, and it was maybe the, the, the Olympic watches were maybe 30 or 40 watches because they, were, they had the same watch with the different flags of all the countries. And there was a watch of the security people on the stadiums. So there are many things, but I was missing the gold, silver and bronze. So I said, I'm sending you my collection, but you have to sell me those. And I still have that as a frame in my house in Switzerland, which I'm very proud of. So Atlanta Swatch Collection 1996. Very That's cool. amazing. And so you had every reference? Every single one, over 1200 watches. Is Swatch still something you, you follow at all, even if you're not collecting it? Not as much anymore, but I always look because for me, it's, I always loved that brand for what it was bringing to the world and this fresh, freshness, can we say that? Yeah. Yes. And, um, and the fact that you could actually sell something in plastic for 50 francs, 50 francs, French francs at that time, which is now, let's say it would be $7 oh my or gosh. $8 at today's, yeah. okay? And, uh, and they were really creative. It was, it was bringing fresh air to the watch world. So I've always given a lot of respect to that brand. Mm. And I, I said, I've got that frame in my house and that's, it's only good memories, only good memories. Well, I think with that, we'll, we'll transition. We, we finish every episode with a, a little bit of a, a lightning round and then a, a recommendation. So I've got just a couple quick questions to ask you and then we'll uh, wrap things up. Okay, so first question, no. Second question, yes. Third question, maybe. And fourth question, 24. Perfect. Anything we're else? Done. Yeah, we're done. All right. Um, what, uh, what's a watch you've seen that, that has caught your eye recently? Something that you've, you've seen and really, uh, really wanted? It's not a watch. I've seen... A movement development. Okay. Like four days ago. Okay. Mm, that will come obviously in one of our watches. Yeah. Um, yum yum. Okay. <laughs> yum, when yum. when that, when might we see this? Um, you will see this in two. The, it's ready. Okay. But you will not see it before 2021. Okay. But when it comes. Remember that day. It's, 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 it's on record now. So it's, yeah. it's, it's a, remember that day. You will say, ooh, ooh. All right, we got a lot of, all right, John, we got to stick around then. Ooh. I'm going to mark my calendar for 2021. No, no, mark your calendar because I can, it's a game. People who know me well, I don't say things just lightly for the fun of it. What I saw, mm, <laughs> yum, yum. <laughs> Perfect. What's, uh, what is the best place you've traveled in the last year? Wow. I know, I know. Actually, 
Soto Grande. It's in the south of Spain, okay. one hour from uh, Marbella. It was a very secluded place, houses on the golf course, some of the best golf courses on, uh, in Europe. It was a fantastic vacation time, quiet, no phone, just uh, my wife and I, and we had the, maybe the best vacations ever. Perfect. What's, uh, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given and who gave it to you? The best piece of advice. Always go back. It's, no, I'm not going to say it. it's, not, it's not the right way of saying it. It it's, goes, goes back to people. Never look at people down, up or down. At, le- at the end, we're all human beings and, and it's, it's just a way of behaving with people in general. I was teaching golf because that was my first job. And I was giving a golf lesson to, a, listen to this, it was Chinese, from Belgium, Jewish. Okay? Okay. Okay. And the guy was so nice. He, he, he was in the diamond business and was teaching him uh, uh, golf lessons. He was a small, small person, short, very thin. And he was always, because I, was, I wanted to learn every time. I didn't like school, but I always loved to learn. And I was asking him when I was teaching him golf to give me lessons about business and life. And he says, never, ever look people up or down. And people will make you either successful or they're going to make you fail drastically. So always remember that. And that stuck to my mind, say, this is what, I, what drives me. I love people and I want people to succeed. I want to grow people. And the best advice I give to people is... Too many times, because of our youth and the way sometimes we are raised, we have issues with self-confidence, trust in what's going to happen. I've got two kids already, so I know uh, I can talk to them and say, yeah, it's believe in yourself. Because I've been told too many times when I was young that it would actually be a failure. I've heard it a zillion times. I would never succeed. I would never be good at anything. So if today I run a watch company who does over a billion in sales and uh, uh, with 1,600 employees, if this is the definition of failure in people's mind, I'm, I'm okay with that. You're doing all right. Yeah. yeah. Um, what's, uh, what's your guilty pleasure? Do you have a guilty pleasure? Yeah, but this I cannot share. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So it's a very guilty pleasure. <laughs> um. Great. Well, then we'll finish things up with uh, with a cultural recommendation. Is there a, is there a book or a film or a place you've gone or something that you want to recommend that our uh, listeners go take a look at when the uh, when the show is over? First of all, I don't read books because I read enough things and I don't have time and I don't want to read books. So people could look at it and say, "Well, but that's not right because you should read books." Maybe when I get older. Um, movies, I'm not gonna, I'm going to talk about anything new because there are a few movies that really stayed and will stay forever in my mind. One of them is Awakenings, Robert De Niro and Robin Williams, 1981, I think. Uh, I could still watch the movie uh, again and again and again. It makes me cry all the time. Beautiful story, again, between people. Um, but in terms of culture, I'm, I'm always very open-minded with what's going on in the world. When I was living in the U.S., I was a big Broadway fan. I still, yesterday, I arrived in New York. We went to see The Illusionists, okay, just to see the way, the way that show was. There was a Chinese-American, actually. I think it's Chinese-American, just got, just won America's Got Talent, which for me, I've never seen this close-up, that close, and to do what he does with his hands is beyond. And it's always about talents and emotions they're going to deliver. So whether it's in uh, music, uh, movies, or, or performances, I'm always open to new things. And there's not a specific one I want to talk about. It's much more get, get, keep your eyes open. Perfect. Uh, John, uh, what, uh, what would you like to recommend <clears throat> to people? Uh, I'm going to recommend uh, a Netflix series, uh, one that maybe a lot of people have already seen. Actually, it's a uh, the Great British Baking Show. Oh yeah, is, like it's fantastic. You know, it's incredible. Uh, if you so, if you are unaware of it or haven't seen it yet, you should check it out. Um, they're not baking like apple pies and little tarts and stuff. No. They're making insane kinds of, uh, you know, really um, 
really intricate things that sometimes are quite high and uh, like depict animals and stuff like that. Just like crazy, yeah. crazy baking uh, as only, I guess, British people can do. Yeah. And it's like kind of a feel good show too. It's like, it very, is, yeah. it's a competition, but like way too cooperative. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. Um, oh, sorry. Sorry. T talking about that. Some, there is one show that you guys should actually watch. Have you seen the HBO series on Serena Williams? No, not yet. Five episodes? Watch. Because people sometimes look at her when she competes. And here at the US Open, there were some, uh, some uh, struggles, I would say. You watch the show and you start to understand what's behind that incredible woman and champion. And you see the behind the scenes. And I would challenge, really challenge anybody to say, you know what? Deal what she dealt with around giving birth and her career and getting married and everything that goes with and come back as good as she is now. Welcome on board. Being 36 now, she's 36 years old, I think. 35, 36. Yeah. Uh, we saw her in Miami, by the way. She's in great shape. And when you watch the show, you understand the depth of what a true champion means. Perfect. Great. Great. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm going to recommend a book that I recently started rereading that I read for the first time many years ago uh, called Scoop by Evelyn Waugh, um, which is kind of like this is kind of an inside baseball recommendation because it's a book that like every journalist reads at some point. Uh, and it's basically about how absurd journalism is. Um, uh, it's Finally. A, I know, right? I, I, it's I, about time. I knew I'd get you on board. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's just, it's fantastic. It's about this like total boondoggle of a reporting trip that all these journalists take to what might be an African republic and might actually just be a giant, essentially like PR op. Oh um, my God, I have to read this. It's completely absurd and fun. <laughs> it was written in the 1920s, I think, and it's it's really hysterical. And I forgot just how funny and incisive it is. And, you know, with all the conversations going on today about you know, kind of the role of, of media in society. I think it's, it, it feels more relevant than I remember it being from when I uh, read it, read it in school. You know what I love about your generation is that when actually, because you're then what, 30 years old now? Yeah. Or not even 30 yet? Not, not quite. Not quite yet. Okay. Um, that you say, yes, something I read a long, long time ago. It sounds like you read something <laughs> like 25 years ago when it was maybe six weeks ago. But I... <laughs> yeah, you're, it was probably... No, your notion of time is actually very special. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> All right. It was probably like eight or nine years ago. I guess I can... Does that count? That counts. Okay. Yeah, that okay. counts. Okay, All okay, right. okay, All okay right. fine. Okay. Um, thanks so much for joining us. It's good to get to sit down and talk Thank to you. you. I know you're a busy, busy, busy man. I know. I had a great time with, with you guys this morning. Great. We did thanks tonight. so much. Thank Hope you, to see you again soon. Okay. Bye. This week's episode was recorded at Audemars Piguet's headquarters in New York City and was produced and edited by Grayson Corhonan. Please remember to subscribe and rate the show. It really does make a difference. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.